He captured Harper's Ferry with his nineteen men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. But his soul goes marching on. John Brown's body. I'm Will Milam, and I'm here to welcome you to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. As we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, I thought we would uh, pivot to something p- perhaps uh, a little less dark. Um, so I decided to go to a period piece about the uh, upbringing of Alfalfa Bill Murray, uh, William Murray, the go- governor of Oklahoma, who was uh, one of the most influential and consequential figures especially in early 20th century Oklahoma history. Um, so I specifically wanted to choose that topic to make it less gloomy, but uh, in researching Alfalfa Bill's early life as well as Alfalfa Bill's later life, it it's just as gloomy. So uh, yeah, let's get started. Today's episode is also going to be a little bit different in that the primary events uh, actually take place in Texas. Um, obviously, the history of Oklahoma and Texas is uh, if not intertwined, at least, you know, uh, distantly related. So uh, because Alfalfa Bill was born in Texas and lived most of his early life in Texas, this uh, uh, episode is going to end excuse me, with his move to Tishomingo. So this is an episode about Oklahoma history or about the foundations of certain elements of Oklahoma history, but it's actually going to be, in a lot of ways, a, a shift into Texas history. So I think that this will be an interesting opportunity to talk about, you know, some other stuff. So Alfalfa Bill, William Henry Murray, was born in Collinsville, Texas, which uh, at the time during his birth was called Toastville, Texas, which is north, very north Texas near the Oklahoma border. Uh, Alfalfa Bill was born after the conclusion of the Civil War, but the Civil War was very much apparent in his upbringing. His father had moved to Texas from Tennessee before the war and was in Texas during the Civil War in this area. So in the background of Murray's birth, because Murray was born in 1869, uh, like we said earlier, was the ramifications of the Civil War, specifically in North Texas. And amongst all the tragedies of the American Civil War, of which there were many, there are far too many to count and far too many really to, to, to cover on any podcast, really. One of the major legal travesties, aside from uh, the institution of chattel slavery as it stood, uh, was an event called the Great Hanging in Gainesville. And to understand the Great Hanging in Gainesville, we're going to have to understand uh, the, the political situation in North Texas uh, around the, the turn of the Civil War era. So North Texas actually surprisingly did not have a lot of secessionist sentiment uh, in the late 1850s in the in the way that a lot of other, you know, true Dixiecrat Southern states did. And even as late as 1859, uh, nearly three quarters of Cook County, um, where all these events take place, 
voted for Sam Houston for governor of Texas. And Sam Houston, obviously, the namesake of Houston, Texas, very important figure in Texas history, was an anti-secessionist, was a unionist and had no intention uh, himself of seceding from the United States. So the I think this kind of goes to show that the secessionist sentiment uh, up until the really the dawn of the Civil War wasn't really there in the way you might expect. But uh, opinions uh, began to change uh, pretty quickly. I think um, obviously there's a myriad of reasons, but the two uh, the two largest reasons that at least my my research would suggest was uh, the election of Abraham Lincoln as well as John Brown's uh, raid on Harper's Ferry, um, which are obviously two uh, major catalysts for the American Civil War. Uh, John Rounds Braden on Harper's Ferry is another uh, area of American history that I don't think gets covered nearly enough. I uh, opened this episode with a verse from John Brown's Body, which was a Union Army marching song. Um, so I recommend y'all to uh, to do some research on John Brown if you have the time. Uh, a really good historian out of the University of Texas just came out with a dual biography of Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. I believe it's called The, uh, the Liberator and the Zealot. Okay, never mind. I was completely wrong. Uh, the book is called The Zealot and the Emancipator, and that's by H.W. Brands. Uh, I read some of that a couple of months ago. I, I only got about 150 pages in. I need to finish it at some point this summer, but it was it was very good, and I think it does a very good quick uh, quick introduction to both John Brown and Abraham Lincoln and their their perspectives on ways uh, on their perspectives on American slavery and ways to end it. But uh, I digress. I apologize. But so anyway, obviously Texas uh, eventually votes to secede from the Union uh, at a uh, at a state convention. Sam Houston, who's still the sitting governor, uh, accepted secession. But instead of trying to join the Confederacy, Sam Houston tried to recreate the Republic of Texas. Which, fun fact, Sam Houston actually was president of Texas at one point. So he was at one time president of a sovereign country. His uh, reasoning there was that the the convention had the power to secede from the United States, but did not have the power to join the Confederate States of America. So for a split second, or for a couple of days anyway, uh, Sam Houston really tried to recreate the Republic of Texas in the 1860s. And then Sam Houston was uh, summarily ousted from the government, and the legislature uh, appointed Edward Clark to become governor of Texas and uh, Governor Clark uh, immediately joined the Confederate States of America. So at this point, uh, Texas is now a member of the Confederate States. So back in North Texas or North Central Texas, they, we got a problem on our hands because we have uh, an area that was overwhelmingly supportive of Sam Houston and up until a couple of years ago was pretty overwhelmingly anti-secessionist. And now Texas has just not only seceded, but joined the Confederate States in the American Civil War. And there's still a lot of uh, union or at least anti-secessionist sympathy in North Texas. So um, you start to see kind of a mass exodus. Obviously, a lot of people see the way the winds are blowing, so they flee north, which means that the anti-secessionists or the maybe the union sympathizers that remained in North Texas are now, their numbers have been significantly dwindled and any power in numbers that they had has been destroyed. And this comes to a head in April of 1862, so we're, we're you know years into the Civil War at this point, and the Confederacy imposes conscription on its citizens. 
And so it's this point that you start to see uh, a peace party pop up and uh, maybe some, some underground union sentiment. And this, of course, is going to cause a backlash and a really, really bad backlash at that. So by October of 1862, Colonel James Borland, a uh, colonel in the Confederate Army, begins to round up and arrest suspected Union sympathizers in North Texas. One of the suspected Union sympathizers, or at least anti-secessionists, uh, who wasn't arrested was actually Dow Murray, so uh, Alfalfa Bill's father. This might be because Alfalfa Bill's dad, if he was still an anti-secessionist at this point, probably wasn't open about it, probably wasn't doing much um, for that cause. Alfalfa Bill, later on in life, would always maintain that his father was anti secessionist and also anti-slavery. Uh, and we really, I, I don't really see any reason to doubt Alfalfa Bill at his word, uh, but we do know that he was not involved enough in these uh, in these peace or pro-union sentiments uh, to be arrested by the Confederate government. But there were almost bet somewhere between 150 to 200 men arrested, accused of Confederate sympathies. And so they are going to be tried for treason. Now, we have an interesting case here with the Confederate States of America, because as they've just seceded from the United States of America, the question was, how do the court systems work? Um, I think Confederate law and Confederate judiciaries are a very kind of weird niche uh, historical study that I, I haven't dived into, even though I've, you know, just recently earned a Juris Doctorate. So it's something that I'd like to learn more about. But from what I've seen here is uh, the local Confederate government set up something like a cross between a court martial and a kangaroo court. Uh, it was called a citizen's court, which kind of reminds one of the French Revolution, which uh, I, I mean that in the most disrespectful way possible, uh, consisted of 12 jurors, and originally, convictions could be had with seven votes, um, meaning so in, in American legal systems, uh, I'll do a quick rundown in case you don't know this or if any of our listeners are outside the United States. Generally, uh, criminal convictions have to be unanimous amongst 12 jurors. Uh, that's in, at the highest level of burden. So uh, going into to a criminal case, the, uh, the odds, we, we stack them in favor of the accused because uh, kind of goes back to Blackstone's notion that it's better that, you know, nine guilty men walk free to guarantee that one innocent man goes free than to put away nine guilty men and put away one innocent man. Uh, that's supposedly the, the, the idea of the American criminal justice system. Uh, but the Citizens Court kind of turned that on its head, that it lowered the amount of uh, necessary proof for conviction. And from my research, it doesn't really seemed that the amount of proof needed was beyond a reasonable doubt. It just kind of seemed to be whatever the jurors felt at the time. But even the Confederate judiciary realized that there was some problems with this system after, uh, it, I, I think it was the first eight, uh, the first eight accused to go before the court were all convicted, uh, which meant um, under, obviously under uh, treason rules that they were to be put to death. So the Confederate courts uh, in this case actually did the right thing, and they uh, upped, they expanded the 
vote the votes necessary for a conviction from seven to nine after those first eight convictions. And after this rule change, actually several of the men who were originally convicted were then acquitted because they had received seven votes for conviction, but not nine votes for conviction. So for a split second, it does appear that the the rule of law is restored and that some kind of coherent criminal justice system is being set up here in North Texas for a split second. Because if you remember several minutes ago, we talked about how one of the major problems here is that a large amount of people who had either anti-secessionist sympathies or pro-union sympathies had already fled North Texas, which meant that the strength in numbers that these anti-secessionists or unionists had has gone by the wayside. This means that really a lot of the only people left in North Texas were hardcore supporters of the Confederacy, hardcore secessionists, who were in no mood to let a bunch of treasonous pro-United States people get off. So immediately after the rules were changed, which led to the acquittals of several men who were originally convicted for this treason, uh, there was a big backlash by the local mob. And the mob convinced the judges uh, to release 14 names of men who had been acquitted by the court. And these men were summarily lynched by the mob. So not to go back to my comparison to the uh, citizen courts of the later stages of the French Revolution, but if you're accused here, you kind of seems like there's no there's no way out for you because you're either gonna get you're either gonna be executed by the government or you're gonna be executed by the mob. It's really take or pick at this point. So for all of, for a lot of these individuals, you're you're just in a really really bad spot. Things got even worse for the accused when two of the jurors left and were summarily replaced by more hardline jurors. And then there were up to 19 acquittals that were reversed. And at the end of the day, 41 to 42 men lost their lives uh, in in these kind of kangaroo court systems. And uh, the records at the time note that they left 41 widows and 300 orphans. And to this day, or at least according to uh, uh, the research I've done on Alfalfa Bill, uh, the Great Hanging of Gainesville is considered to be one of the largest, to be the largest single instance of lynching in American history. Of course, there I'm assuming that the Confederate States of America were not actually a separate country, but were just American states in rebellion. So, yeah, uh, I, I would count that as in American history. The reactions in Texas uh, contemporaneously were kind of were a bit disturbing. There, there was actually a lot of. Uh, a lot of support for it, especially um, from the government in Austin, because it was seen as North Texas being this this uh, this kind of hotbed of anti anti um, secessionist sympathy. So obviously, this uh, uh, I mean, clearly after after this event, the uh, the anti secessionist or the the pro union sympathies in uh, in North Texas were really stamped out for the rest of the war. Um, thankfully, uh, reaction quelled after the American Civil War had ended. And today, there's actually a war memorial in Gainesville, Texas, um, that you can go by and see uh, that that honors the dead um, from this this tragedy. Uh, Gainesville, Texas, if for anybody from Oklahoma, Texas, is actually really easy to get to uh, traveling on I-35. Um, it's just right over the border. Um, so you know, like me, if I'm if I'm driving from Oklahoma City, where I am now, to Dallas, where I am often, uh, I drive through Gainesville every time I do that. So next time I go down there, I, I make a plan on stopping by this, uh, by the war memorial and honoring the, uh, the, the 42 men who lost their lives. 
Ironically, though, uh, at this time, Jefferson Davis, who is the president of Confederacy, who at this point, I think, I think was in Richmond. I think the, uh, I think by the time um, the Great Hanging took place, the Confederacy had moved their capital to Richmond. Was a bit cooler um, about his reactions. He was not as he was not as gung ho uh, about um, stamping out um, minority dissent in uh, in Texas. Uh, he had, he had already, I know, recalled a commander. Um, or a commander, uh, uh, some high-ranking military officers in Texas, from the way that they were that they were handling themselves. So it was just kind of weird because uh, um, the the responses in Texas were actually more uh, were more elated than the president of the Confederacy himself. But soon after the end of the Civil War, uh, that pro-Union or anti-secession sympathy in North Texas. Uh, if not condoned by society, was uh, obviously not punished uh, legally anymore. So I think that at this point, uh, Dal Murray, uh, Bill Murray's father, could be probably a little bit more open if we can trust Bill Murray's word that he was uh, always anti-slavery and always anti-secessionist. But so four years after uh, this event uh, in 1869 up in Collinsville, uh, Bill Murray was born. When Murray was two years old, his mother passed away and his father remarried and moved the family to uh, Montague, Texas. And we don't know much else about uh, Alfalfa Bill's early life, but we do know that at the either the age of 11 or 12, Alfalfa Bill and his brother ran away from home. Uh, the way that uh, the book I've been reading about Alfalfa Bill put it is they, they left to go to church and they wouldn't return for nine years. During Alfalfa Bill's teenage years and adolescence, he lived uh, kind of an itinerant lifestyle. He would go uh, in the summer times or in planting or harvest season, working on farms, uh, doing that kind of farm labor, whereas in the winter when there was less work to be done, would attend school where he could. Uh, so a pretty standard schedule. Um, obviously, that's uh, for a farm laborer and you know, it's kind of a fun fact. The reason that we have our school set up in the United States around uh, taking the summers off while going to school in the fall and the winter is actually based around that uh, that agricultural schedule. So Alfalfa Bill was kind of a uh, uh, model of that. But by the late 1880s, Alfalfa Bill decided that he's probably worth a little bit more than uh, being a farmhand and starts attending the, uh, the College Hill Institute in Springtown, Texas. And uh, in the recent literature on Alfalfa Bill, there's a really interesting discussion regarding how much college Alfalfa Bill actually attended and whether or not Alfalfa Bill actually ever graduated with a degree from the College Hill Institute. Uh, we know that he started and stopped his education a couple times due to cost, and there's a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of questions. But we do know that at least Alfalfa Bill came out of there in 1889 with a degree that made him able to become a teacher. So for a short time after that, Alfalfa Bill worked as a schoolmaster. And uh, in the uh, the new Alfalfa Bill biography from the University of Oklahoma Press, there is a uh, kind of a funny uh, funny little tidbit where Alfalfa Bill uh, threatened to, uh, to discipline a kid and the kid would... Um, the kid responded basically saying that, you know, if, if Alfalfa Bill disciplined him, he would go home and tell his dad, to which Alfalfa Bill said, well, you tell your dad to come here and I'll discipline him too. So uh, it created a little bit of, you know, funny tidbits. But 
So Alfalfa Bill, while being a school teacher, also began to take up politics, which would become his lifelong profession and goal. Alfalfa Bill specifically started campaigning for the Democratic Party in North Texas, uh, as well as the Farmer Alliance, focusing specifically on farmer issues. Uh, obviously, this is a very agricultural society. And if you've been paying any attention, you know that Alfalfa Bill at this point has spent a majority of his life uh, doing agriculture-related activities and you know working as a farmhand. So he's obviously got a lot of opinions. After Alfalfa Bill's schoolmaster career petered out, he would move to Corsicana, Texas, uh, east of where he was, and decide to remake himself as a newspaper man. Uh, his newspaper career actually did a little was a little bit more successful, at least as a writer, but not necessarily as a publisher. Uh, and his newspaper in Corsicana failed after a couple of years and then would relocate again to Fort Worth. And if you remember from the Red River Bridge War episode when we did our very, very, very quick uh, biography of Alfalfa Bill, this is when Alfalfa Bill decides to take to law. Um, Alfalfa Bill, obviously his remembered um, primarily for being a politician, but he was also a very skilled attorney. And while Alfalfa Bill was in Fort Worth, he uh, became a lawyer by a method that is not very common now, but was more common back then called reading law. Now, I went to a, a law school for three years and took a bunch of classes and got a Juris Doctorate degree. Um, which allows me to sit for the bar exam, hopefully, and God willing, become a licensed attorney. Uh, the bar exam was still a thing back then, um, but you could become a lawyer by reading law. So you'd uh, find a law practice and, or an attorney, and you would read the law under them. So basically, it would be like a almost like an apprenticeship type thing, and you would learn the substantive law that way. And then after finishing that reading of the law, you would sit for the bar exam like any other bar student. So, and this is what Alfalfa Bill did. And in 1897, he passed the bar exam in Texas and began to practice law in Fort Worth. And for a second there, it looked like Alfalfa Bill's legal career was going to go the way of his publishing career, of his writing career, of his teaching career, and of his farm career that it was going to peter out and he wasn't going to make anything of himself. Uh, this was until Alfalfa Bill heard about Tishomingo, Oklahoma, which, again, if you remember from the Red River Bridge War episode, was in high demand of attorneys because Tishomingo was the capital of the Chickasaw Nation, meaning that they were having to deal with the Indian Territory Law, which would become Oklahoma State Law, uh, the United States Federal Law, as well as Chickasaw Nation Law. So when you've got three different dual sovereigns in one place, uh, there's a lot of demand for attorneys. And even though that's a deadweight loss, a lot of attorneys went there and Alfalfa Bill followed. And from there, Alfalfa Bill would start his trajectory to becoming not only governor, but one of the most consequential figures of all Oklahoma history. And uh, that's where we're going to leave it today. Um, obviously, I want to cover um, Alfalfa Bill's life, uh, the good and the bad. And trust me, there's if you know anything about Alfalfa Bill's racial opinions, there's a lot of bad to cover, and we're going to get to all of that. But I think that this was a good primer on Alfalfa Bill's early life, and especially the culture that he grew up around, and the uh, the tragedies that that uh, his uh, his immediate contemporaries witnessed. You know, several years before he was born, 
to put in perspective kind of the life that he's eventually going to lead and the kind of people that he was around. So uh, with that, I'm going to leave off with uh, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, you know, just kind of saying what I, what I've been doing. Um, I haven't, uh, haven't been able to get off topic in a couple of weeks, obviously, because the Tulsa race massacre is full of information and it took a long time to parse out what was going to go in and what was going to go out of that because I knew that I tried to keep these episodes under 30 minutes and there was absolutely no way I was going to be able to do the whole thing in 30 minutes. So I thought that two 30 minute episodes were, were pretty, uh, pretty standard. Um, I've been reading, uh, a couple books that I think have been pretty good. Um, on my nightstand right now is, uh, is a time to keep silence by Patrick Lee Fermore, who, if you know anything about Patrick Lee Fermore was the, uh, was the eventual um, British military officer who kidnapped General Kuiper on Crete in World War II, uh, but was famous before that for walking um, basically from, I think he got off the boat in uh, Amsterdam and walked to Constantinople, um, obviously not known as Istanbul, but he wrote uh, good reflections on his time spent in European monasteries uh, in France and believe Belgium. I'm not that far into the book, but I'll keep you updated as I go through, but it's a very good reflection on silence and also um, old monastic life. Uh, I'm also reading The Battle for Christmas, which is a good, um, I'm about. I'm only about 70 pages into that, but so far it's a very good uh, uh, kind of cultural narrative history of uh, the way Christmas has been celebrated in the United States and obviously our predecessors from England and the way uh, commercialization changed it and the way we uh, made a Santa Claus figure as a way to bring back um, old Christmas traditions that never really existed. But it's just kind of a fun thing to read in uh, in the summertime when the weather's really hot and I'm longing for you know cooler Christmas season. Uh, and the last book that I have on my on my stand my nightstand right now is uh, Sir Roger Scruton's The Face of God. Uh, Sir Roger Scruton, the English um, traditionalist conservative uh, political philosopher who died, uh, I believe, two years ago. Um, these were, I believe, his Gifford Lectures notes um, about uh, about the aesthetics and the presence of God in the world in kind of a deracinated or demystified world. And um, I'm not very far into that one either, but you know, so far he's talking a lot about Kant's, um, Kant's uh, disagreements about how to prove the existence of God. And so far it's very erudite and a lot of it's just way over my head. But if you have any... Uh, if you have any interest, send me what you're reading. I'd love to hear about it. Um, summer reading uh, is obviously something that we should all do more of, and uh, I'd like to promote doing that on this podcast, even though this is about Oklahoma history and culture. So with that, I'll see everybody next week, and uh, I'm Will Milam, and this is the America of America podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.